When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Could this be the day I've waited for Where well, my hard work doesn't go ignore Maybe she was right They will realize I can change the world Open up their eyes They know I am born And so need to burn My same average bones I believe in love I just want to prove By the service gift I will change this world Baby, this is it Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. Just go to insidetheboards.com audible to see what I've been reading don't give up being a reader just because you're in medical school with over 180,000 titles to choose from. Right now, I'm recommending Adelake Adesina's How to Prepare for the Medical Boards, Secrets for Success on the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. Written as a third-year medical student with the info fresh in his mind, Dr. Adesina, an upcoming podcast guest and founder of SmashUSMLE.com, presents a guide for medical students preparing for the first level of their licensing exams. We'll cover Dr. Adesina's exam journey in an upcoming show, but suffice to say, he knows his stuff. He took both the Comlex and the USMLE. In the book, he presents a plan for how to study the major topics tested on the boards and suggests a unique approach to reading and keeping mental notes. Uh, it's a nice little introduction, especially if you're about five, six months away from taking step one to kind of get an overview of the things you need to be thinking about when you plan your dedicated step prep time. And on that note, come March, we're going to be doing a series of podcast shows on step one focused material to help you prepare. We're going to try to cover all the major topics over the two to three month period. So stay tuned for that. On today's show, we have Josh Landy, who is the founder of Figure One, which is like Instagram for medicine. It's going to be a two-part show, and in this first one, Dr. Landy discusses what medical education in Canada is like and gives us a preview of how he founded Figure One, which we'll get into in more depth in part two of this episode. Plus, if you're interested, you can go to insidetheboards.com slash figure one, that's figure the number one, to read our top accounts to follow from the Figure One platform. As part of the Figure One series of episodes, head over to insidetheboards.com slash episode 021, the numbers. If you leave a review of the podcast and send us a screenshot to info at insidetheboards.com, you'll be entered to win the contest for this two-part episode. A Figure One swag bag with an anatomical heart t-shirt, a femur pen, and a brain tote bag. So you can see some of these items on the show notes page, insidetheboards.com slash episode 021. They're pretty cool, so check those out. 
And while you're doing that, let me just say I would really appreciate if you would consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes especially. We're trying to increase our cloud on iTunes. So if you're listening on your phone and not driving, I'd really appreciate if you would just take the time to leave us a rating if you don't have time to do a review. The interface is sort of clunky, but all you have to do is launch Apple's podcast app, tap the search button, enter inside the boards, all one word into the search bar, tap our album art, and then tap the reviews tab, hit write a review, and we're working hard to get five-star reviews, but your honesty is what counts, and any review you leave, we will definitely take into account and try to improve the show for you. So without further ado, our interview with Figure One founder, Dr. Josh Landy. Today we have Dr. Joshua Landy, who is a critical care physician. He completed his uh, medical studies at the University of Western Ontario, then his medicine residency at the University of Alberta, and a critical care fellowship at the University of Toronto. In 2012, Joshua was a visiting scholar at Stanford University, where he researched online and multimedia-oriented approaches to health education, which culminated in 2013 with the co-founding of the mobile health startup called Figure One, which is especially why we asked Josh to come on the podcast today. Figure One's a free repository of medical images available to healthcare professionals and students in the health professions. And if you haven't downloaded Figure One, you should check it out at figureone.com. That's figure1.com. So, Josh, thanks for taking the time today. That's my pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So, each of these podcasts, we start with a little bit of learning. And our question of the day is from the NBME's uh, subject examination sample items. I'll go ahead and read it, and then we can uh, discuss it. An 18-year-old man is brought to the emergency department 10 minutes after he sustained a stab wound to his chest. On arrival, he is unresponsive to painful stimuli. His pulse is 130 beats per minute. Respirations are 8 per minute and shallow. And palpable systolic blood pressure is 60 millimeters of mercury. He is intubated and mechanically ventilated. An infusion of 0.9% saline is begun. After five minutes, his pulse is 130 beats per minute and blood pressure is 70 over 40. Examination shows a two centimeter wound at the left sixth intercostal space at the midclavicular line. There is jugular venous distension. Breath sounds are normal. The trachea is at the midline. Heart sounds are not audible. Which of the following is the most likely cause of these findings? A. Bronchial disruption. B, hemothorax, C, myocardial infarction, D, pericardial tamponade, or E, tension pneumothorax? And the answer is D, pericardial tamponade. Josh, so you're a critical care guy. I am not. I'm an OBGYN. <laughs> so okay. how would you approach this question if you were taking a test? Um, I mean, this this is a great question uh, for a few reasons, and it's actually a terrible question for a few more reasons. And I, <laughs> we should talk about both of those because I think they're both pretty interesting. The first is, let's just look at the presentation. Somebody gets stabbed in the place where their heart is and comes in with uh, what hopefully most people will recognize as Beck's triad. One of the things that I remember learning more about Beck's triad than the actual name itself is yes. <laughs> that very few people actually present with Beck's triad. 
Except on the boards, perhaps. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So anyway, this question you could answer before you even are presented with the answers uh, that are provided, the multiple choice options. So I think that's probably the way I would tackle this question. In terms of trying to assess what sorts of things are possible, certainly you can tell that this person is an extremist, uh, that they have impending circulatory collapse, and that th it's probably some type of uh, cardiac or obstructive shock. And so the two things that sort of leap out immediately, especially given the location of the injury, are tension pneumothorax and, of course, tamponade. We know that given the trachea is midline, um, there's no shift to the side, which is one of the ways that you can diagnose uh, tension pneumothorax. And uh, the fact that the heart sounds are absent is, is uh, again, pointing towards tamponade. There's a couple of things that I took note of in this question that sort of threw me a bit. The first is that the patient had a slow respiratory rate, not a fast one, where typically somebody who is very sympathetically activated, um, who is likely to be hypotensive, now becoming acidotic, uh, would be breathing very, very fast. The, the second thing is that the patient has a, uh, a systolic blood pressure of 60 or a palpable blood pressure of 60 uh, and then is intubated and mechanically ventilated and subsequently has a higher blood pressure. Although if you, uh, if, if you follow me, having an elevated intrathoracic pressure causing obstructive shock, and then you add the intrathoracic pressure from positive pressure ventilation uh, and the sedation for intubation, there is no way that patient's blood pressure is going to be higher than it was before you started. There's no <laughs> way. Um, in fact... We're, we're frequently warned against intubating these patients without aggressive resuscitation up front because most likely they're going to crash when you intubate them. So uh, that's something that I would sort of want to negotiate around this question, but it doesn't make the answer any less obvious. Sure. Uh, actually, I pulled it from the surgery shelf exam. So a third year surgery um, clerkship student probably doesn't need to know all the details or, or even is privy to the, the knowledge you have in an additional, what, six years of graduate medical education. It's important that the student who sees a question like this, because very likely on your surgery shelf exam or taking a step two, um, you're going to find a question that describes Beck's triad. That is jugular venous distension, muffled heart sounds, and hypotension. Those three components are pericardial tamponade. Um, that's what you should recognize. And um, I guess what would lead you away or argue against, say, choice B, which is hemothorax? Well, I, I was thinking about this. Um, certainly, you'd experience respiratory distress with hemothorax. Mm -hmm. And again, you'd be thinking more likely a tachypnic uh, picture. I, I would expect that. Yeah, I would. Um, I mean, certainly the, the presence of distended jugular veins and absent heart sounds are certainly more suspicious uh, in this case of tamponade than they would be of a hemothorax, given that your, in obstructive shock, your central venous pressure uh, and thus your jugular venous distension uh, would, be, would be elevated uh, in tamponade because of the, the obstructive nature of the shock. In hemothorax, it's a, um, it's a hypovolemic shock, and so you would tend to see flat, flat veins, and you would definitely be able to hear the heart. I always tell people the, the boards are, while well, they attempt to make medicine something that's black and white, 
when in reality, <laughs> in clinical practice, it's it's hardly ever like that. So I could very much imagine somebody who is uh, stabbed in the left sixth intercostal space at the midclavicular line, which is a very very specific place to be stabbed, could also suffer uh, some bleeding into the pleural space and whatnot. So I still think, though, what argues best for this answer being correct is, number one, you need a traumatic cause. So you're going to be picking something that results from trauma. And myocardial infarction is, is less on the differential than the other four. Bronchial disruption, I think, is a nonspecific term that that the writer here is using, and which for which there's no evidence because the trachea is midline. I, I imagine there'd be more descriptors within the vignette about the location of the, the, the stab wound to specify this over another diagnosis. But the real, I guess, kicker is the presence of those three elements of Beck's triad, which every med student should know, indicates pericardial tamponade. And just again, that's muffled heart sounds, hypotension, and jugular venous distension. The, the thing that I wanted to add before, by the yeah. way, was, was on the topic of uh, the patient's blood pressure, which I think was 70 over 40 or something like that. After the intubation. Right. This patient should have a very narrow pulse pressure, right? You would expect that somebody who has an obstructive type of shock where their, their heart literally can't pump more blood than, uh, than it's already doing. Um, they, the patients like that would typically have a narrow pulse pressure because of the low stroke volume. Yeah. And so, um, with a fast, with a fast heart rate, you would expect to see somebody like this with a blood pressure of 70 over 55 you know, 75 over 65. Yeah. I mean, you, you see some really tenuous things, but 70 over 40 is a very generous pulse pressure in, this, in a patient like this. Well, let's, let's move on to a little bit about you because having to think about all the things related to critical care, you know, gives me a little bit of uh, PTSD type symptoms. <laughs> Going back to like, you know, the equation for mean arterial pressure and, and thinking about all the lines and rounding in the ICU as a student and then uh, as a resident, just all the details you had to know. I, I think we want to get into the mind of Josh Landy. So tell us, I guess, to start, uh, where or what was your undergraduate medical education like? All of my training has been in Canada. So I, I think there's probably a slight difference that uh, we'll, you'll, you may note throughout uh, my training that things were you know, consistent with the way uh, the Canadian med medical system is designed. Well, actually, I mean, that's probably something not a lot of uh, our American listeners know. What are some of the differences? Well, I think it, it, the, mo the biggest differences are not in how it's learned day to day, but in um, how, what you expect to be doing when you, when you graduate. Because I think it's more the job market and the job structure of being a physician in Canada that's different than the United States. So, I mean, one of the biggest differences between Canada and the United States is the payment structure for physicians. Yep. And it's not that I want to get into the details of the financing of those things, but that in Canada, many physicians are not employed by the hospital, but are independent contractors who uh, submit their uh, remittances to the government to be paid you know, totally independently of the hospital. So that, that does two things. One, it means that the, the hospitals uh, don't hire and fire doctors. Uh, they do something called privileging doctors, which means that if you work at a hospital, um, it's actually very difficult to lose your job. And, and hospitals have sometimes an unfortunately difficult time 
trying to uh, remediate a physician who may have different practices than the hospital wants them to. Sure. The other part is that uh, as an internal medicine trainee, I was prepared for a, a, a specialty where I was going to be looking after complex multi-system diseases of patients who would be referred from their primary care providers. Because in Canada, internal medicine is not a primary care practice. It's a specialty practice, and it's much, much smaller than the market in the United States for internal medicine, which tends to be more similar to what family medicine is in Canada. So internal medicine trainees who we, I remember meeting several of them during my training who came from the United States and transferred to Canada, um, their practices were tended to be, have been focused on seeing patients in clinic and um, referring them to subsequent specialists. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Canada, uh, many times you, you won't see anybody primarily. They'll be referred to you because you are the specialist and very little internal medicine, although there certainly is some of it, uh, is practiced in, in clinics, and that's specifically in the big cities. Yeah. And uh, still three years for an internal medicine residency? It's four years, um, four years although okay. you're, you're permitted to overlap your fourth year with your specialty training. And so um, I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And so I did three years in at the University of Alberta. And then my fourth year, which was my overlap year, I did at the University of Toronto uh, in my critical care residency. Uh, and then the final year, of course, of critical care after that, uh, completing five years of residency total. So what made you choose critical care? There wasn't anything in any of the internal medicine subspecialties that appealed to me more, that's for sure. But I also liked uh, the idea that you had to think of a person as a as a machine that uh, had dysfunction in many different ways, that there were these systems that were out of, uh, that were in disequilibrium and you had to discover what was driving it and how to uh, resourcefully um, reverse it. So I I like the concept that you sort of like looking after the whole person and not a single system, um, because I I think that's the way I, I tend to think about problems. You tend to think about the system as a whole, as opposed to an individual problem. Um, because as in medicine, just like in life, things are never, uh, never occur in a vacuum. I also like the idea that, you know, as an intensivist, I could meaningfully help somebody in the moment when they truly needed it the most. And that, that was going to be able, I was going to be able to, um, focus entirely on an, on a patient's experience and um, and deliver what I hope uh, what would be the biggest difference that could be made in their health. So I sort of thought like if I could make the largest difference possible, where, where could I do that? And so all of those things together um, sort of met me at critical care. I also liked uh, the idea that you worked really hard for a short period of time and then you uh, could really be released from clinical responsibilities to do uh, to do other projects and uh, like I did with figure one you know it's been a, a fruitful endeavor because of that okay so that's an overview of kind of the um, uh, start to finish medical training for an intensivist in Canada your med school is four years like ours correct yeah just just like Abraham Flexner told us to do it in 1910. <laughs> yeah, and it hasn't changed a bit since. Um, <laughs> or very We're working little. on it. We're exactly. working on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, what about uh, standardized exams in uh, medical school? What's different about Canada and the U.S.? Well, uh, we, we're, we're able to take the same exams as you do in the U.S., you know, and I, I took my USMLEs, and I'm, I even uh, took the uh, the boards when I finished my um, my training. So I'm board certified uh, in Canada and the U.S. 
but the, there's just a different set of tests at slightly different intervals. You, you complete a test at the end of medical school, which I guess is concurrent with the USMLE part one. And then you, there is a second part to that test, which you do in your second year of residency. And after that, the only uh, examination that's left is your specialty examination at the end, uh, which is given to you by the College of Family Physicians in Canada, if you're a family physician, or the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, if you become a specialist or a surgeon. All right. I'm trying to think about this. So you took USMLE's step one, two, and three. That's right. And the Medical Council of Canada's qualifying examination parts one and two. <laughs> it's nice of you to, uh, to know the names of the exams. Yeah, that's right. So, and that's not a, a requirement for uh, practice in Canada. You were just going the extra mile or had some interest perhaps in practicing in the United States. I'm, I'm just curious. No, for me, it was, it was about keeping my options open and taking the time to really prepare because I feel like preparing for examinations is something that uh, you can learn a lot from doing. Definitely. As long as you're not scared of taking the test itself. Well, a lot of people are, but <laughs> it sounds like you weren't, or if you, you were, you uh, looked fear in the eye and overcame it. But are the uh, MCCQEs uh, similar to the USMLE exams? Step step one and uh, the uh, MCCQE part one are very similar. Uh, and part two, uh, it's more the the Canadian test is more similar to the um, the clinical uh, component, like the uh, CS exam, where you that's right, yeah, the clinical do an OSCE and objective structured clinical exam. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in fact, I've got an interesting story about uh, Canadian OSCEs, which which you might like. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear it. When I was a chief resident in my final year of internal medicine residency, we had I was on a, a, a committee that was helping set some of the uh, the OSCEs for the the residents of the hospital, and it, it came to the attention of the uh, the uh, the person who was essentially the head examiner that the students had gotten together to create a wiki of of all the different uh, stations that could be on an OSCE and had compiled all the answers, of course, to go with it, and he was furious because. He, in his eyes, uh, the students were cheating. You know, I took the opportunity to point out to him that this is stuff that you're trying to get these people to learn anyway. So if they're self-assembling and creating a community where they can share information and get better at the test that they're meant to take in order to learn, then isn't that the whole point of these type of formative examinations anyway? And the response was? Um, uh, he was not pleased with me. <laughs> um, yeah, I could see that. It probably makes him feel or would have made him feel like there was more work to be done in, in terms of making sure that it, that the, the stations had some differences and, and really intellectually challenged the students. And, uh, but I mean, that is a good point. I mean, that's essentially the point you made is the reason why there are, uh, companies in, all over the world, which essentially teach to the test that students have to take, um, whether it's, yeah. you know, the ACT or SATs um, or, you know, medical licensing exams. So are the MCCQEs uh, scored or they pass fail? You know, I, I honestly don't remember. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, let me ask you this. Here's a personal question kind of about test taking. Have you had any test-taking failures in your academic history or what you would describe as, as maybe not getting the score you think you deserved for the hard work you put in studying? Oh, in, in almost every test that I've taken. 
Really? Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it, there's two, I mean, two in particular come to mind. I, I'll tell you, I think, the one that's a bit more interesting, which is I, I we had a, um, a type of formative OSCE-style examination in critical care where I remember uh, being asked about how the time constant would affect a patient's ventilation. And I looked the examiner straight in the eye and said, I'm sorry, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I've never <laughs> heard that term before. And um, if you could tell me what it is, then I could probably tell you. And of course, they're not able, to, they're not permitted uh, to tell you any definitions of the words on the exam. Uh, and so I just had to sit there until the time ran out, not having any idea what he was talking about. And <laughs> When, um, you know, when, when I was reviewing the, the exam with one of my supervisors, she asked me why I didn't know anything about that term. And I said, well, to be honest, I've never heard it before and I'm a year and a half into my training. And so if it's so important, how come nobody has ever said that word before? Yeah. I just, I, you know, it made me feel like in that moment, um, you're really just asking me if I've heard of something that is not super useful from day to day. Yeah. Um, you know, and if it's really important, like, let's talk about it. I really, really strongly feel that like education and clinical studies should not be separated. These are things that we need to weave together. And that's something that um, we'll talk about when we talk about figure one yeah. is the idea that education and clinical practice should be this, they should have the same goals, right? Ma like make you uh, a better, safer, more competent practitioner, which, which to me is why I think about that OSCE argument. And it makes me sort of realize that medical education, even, you know, as recent as 10 years ago, still has not grasped the fact that we're trying to deliver education to make people competent practitioners. It, it has nothing to do with it. Like, who cares if, uh, if things are graded on a curve and who cares if, uh, if, you know, a certain number of people um, or too many people are in the top half of the class. None of that's important. The important thing is that you take, you know, 150 people in a, in a class of medical school and you make them 150 of the best doctors that you can possibly. And so it, and it doesn't matter where that information comes from. If they learn the material you want them to learn and they're good at the job you want them to do, then, you know, just put them to work. Yeah. <laughs> people, are, people are dying to get out there. So let's not make residency much longer than it needs to be. Let's focus on competency-based training. Yeah, and uh, you know that that brings up a good point too. Um, you you had mentioned Beck's triad and and that eponym. So the the question is like, is it important for somebody to know the term Beck's triad? Not not really. What is important is to know the components and what they mean. And actually, the USMLE and um, Comlex have over the years gone away from using eponyms or, or buzzwords, uh, particularly for this reason, because there are certain regionalisms uh, anywhere in medical practice that that maybe your institution uses the term Beck's triad all the time in their educational content and teaching. Someone else uses the um, components uh, of the term, the description, and you're not really testing anybody's knowledge if you use some term that has 10 synonyms but doesn't really give the info that's required to assess somebody's knowledge. So I, I don't know, is, is it the time constant something of that nature uh, in critical care? I know nothing about this. So Yeah, no, the time constant is actually a pretty interesting um, 
phenomenon. And, and it's, a, it's actually a physics term that has to do with the amount of time it takes to, in this case, empty uh, all the pressurized air from an alveolar sac. And so if you think about the amount of time it takes to get the air out, um, that can tell you how, to, how the rest of the system is going to interact with regards to um, uh, its, its sort of systemic compliance. And so you can think about somebody who takes a very, very long time to exhale, like a patient who's got uh, advanced emphysema or COPD, mm-hmm. as a, having a very different respiratory pattern and having different respiratory risks than somebody who maybe has pulmonary fibrosis and has a, a very short uh, exhalation period. Um, and so those are, those are things you need to bear in mind when you're um, designing or adjusting that patient's ventilation settings. I see. Maybe maybe your examiner will listen to this podcast and, and you, you will have been redeemed. Uh, <laughs> but let's not end on a, a negative note. Tell us about your best uh, success in taking an exam for your medical training. What uh, what provides a good example of, of when you, you really did well and what did you do that contributed to that success? Um, that's a question that's nice because I get to sort of flatter myself exactly. by that's, some that's... tremendous success. <laughs> and when I uh, when I did my um, internal medicine boards, the examiners uh, stood up at the end of the exam and both shook my hand and wished me luck. Just like I've never had anybody. Uh, I think they're supposed to maintain a pretty straight face. Yeah. But at the end of the examination, they were like over, like overly congratulatory uh, that the exam was over and you know escorted me back to the waiting room and sort of wished me luck with my career. And I, I sort of felt in that moment, like I didn't really have very much to worry about, you know, pending the envelope. Yeah. And which I assume you passed with flying colors because you went on to your fellowship. So yeah, you actually don't, uh, you don't really, if you pass, you don't get very much more information than congratulations. Well, that's good though. In many ways, I wish that's how it were, uh, within, you know, the, the licensing examination, um, sequence as well probably cut down on some anxiety amongst medical students for sure. But I take oral boards. Actually, that's that's an interesting note. In, in the U.S., uh, you don't have to do oral boards, essentially, unless you're in like a surgical specialty. Maybe, maybe that's easier, uh, written exams rather than oral exams. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I personally, I've had uh, a lot of anxiety with oral exams. Written exams uh, don't stress me out at all. Yeah, same here. I take my oral boards in in a month and a half, and I've got a little more a little more anxiety closer to what I felt surrounding step one when I was a medical student than I have had in a very long time. But <laughs> we will save the rest of the story for next episode, so stay tuned. This episode's music is thanks to Forgive Durden. The track is "Life Is Looking Up" off the 2008 album. Razia's Shadow music. Thanks to Tom Dutton for giving us permission to use the song. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards and Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.